I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. And uh, this is a difficult portion of Scripture um, where John measures the temple and observes the ministry of the two witnesses. And I would easily say of all the chapters in Revelation so far up to this point, I've found this, this chapter to be the most difficult um, really to understand and interpret, but we will give it a try, uh, but not without seeking the Lord's help first. So let's pray. Father, many mysteries here in this chapter, and yet even as we sang, all glory be to Christ our King, all glory be to Christ, that's where all the passages in Revelation end. It's a book focused on Jesus and focused upon His return. And we long, O oh Jesus, that You would come. And so that is our, our heart's prayer, O oh God, is that You would come and establish the, Your justice and vindicate those who dwell upon the earth who are, are suffering a hardship. And God, bring to culmination just all the, the plans that You have laid in store for the world and I would pray even right now, God, as, as uh, we just work our way through Revelation 11, I pray that you'd help us to discern what is, what is right with these things, um, God, what is true. And, and I pray, God, that you would just help to open our eyes, that we'd see wonderful things from your word, that we'd be most of all just encouraged and emboldened by your protection of us and potential witnesses uh, for you. So strengthen me now, even that I just might open this text accurately and rightly. You know my heart's desires for that in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of my message this morning is Measuring and Witnessing. Because these are the two activities that we see in Revelation chapter 11. We see the, the measuring of the temple, and we see John, we see the, the witnesses come and, and prophesy for Jesus. And so I want to read our text first. We're Revelation 11, uh, verses 1 through 14 is where we are. And, and as I read the text, I want you to listen to these activities, measuring and witnessing. John says this, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, for they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of the prophecy, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. The third woe is soon to come. Well, my first point this morning is measuring. If you kids are wise, you can probably guess what my second point is going to be. Measuring, and witness, measuring is what we're looking at right now. 
And this is what John was called to do in verses 1 and 2. He's called to measure the temple. Look there again at verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. At this point, John breaks the fourth wall of the text and actually enters into the drama of Revelation himself. Now, most often in the book of Revelation, John's just an observer. What he sees, he writes down. He sends it to the seven churches of, of Asia Minor. But here he becomes a participant in the vision. He's given a measuring rod to measure the temple. This is like chapter 10 also. He became a participant. and He had a scroll, and he actually ate the scroll. Here he's given a measuring rod and told to measure the temple. Now, in this case, the rod is like a, a staff. It's a, it's a long stick, if you will. In ancient Israel, they often made their staffs from a reed-like plant that grew in the Jordan Valley. It was much like our bamboo, right? a, a long and hollow stick that, that keeps its shape but is light. Um, so you picture a, an 8-foot 2x4 would be pretty heavy, but an 8-foot bamboo rod, is staff, is not, not so hard. It would be a perfect measuring device, much like our, our yardstick. Now, when Ezekiel was, saw this temple, and Ezekiel was given a similar task of measuring the temple, it was, he was given a staff that was nine feet long. Um, we don't know if John measured his yardstick, what is measuring rod, nine feet, maybe, maybe just three feet. We don't know exactly, no, but somehow John was told to lay it end to end to measure this temple. At this point, you really need to ask a question, all right? This is temple. What temple exactly is John measuring? Because at the time of John's writing, right, there was no temple, if we believe, like it, most most people do, is written after A.D. 70, written about 90, 95 A.D. Some people, because of this temple, say, oh no, Revelation has to be written beforehand, uh, before the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. But we think it uh, was written afterwards, after the temple had been destroyed, just as Jesus had said to the disciples when they talked about these marvelous buildings, right? This temple mount. Jesus said, you see all these buildings, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, Matthew 24, verse 2. And so there's no temple in Jerusalem at this time, but John sees this temple because it's in a vision. And so what temple does he see? What, what temple is he commissioned to measure? Well, it could be that he saw the Solomonic temple, that temple of Solomon's day that Solomon built. It could be the second temple that Zerubbabel built, or it may be Herod's temple that was stood in Jesus' day that was destroyed in AD 70, or... As many think, maybe this is some temple built in the future. Today, right now, there are Jews working hard to rebuild the temple. And many Christians are really excited about this and giving to that prospect, thinking it's a good thing. That's a horrible thing for a temple to be constructed. Because when a temple is constructed and they offer sacrifices on that altar, you know what they're doing? They're spitting in the face of Jesus, saying the sacrifice of Jesus was not sufficient. We need to have animal sacrifices. So I would just encourage you to oppose that and resist that with all of your might because those who are doing so are blaspheming Christ. I'm not excited about efforts to rebuild the temple. Now, in all of this, right, I'm not sure, by the way, that it's really important for the text to come to a conclusion which temple John is called to measure to get the text right. I say this because there's something strange about John's task. Look at it in verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So John's to measure this temple. He's to, to measure the altar, right? These are physical structures you can measure there. But then he's told to measure the people who are worshiping there. Kind of gives you an indication, perhaps, what the meaning of this temple is or the purpose of it. It's not for architectural reasons. It's not so that he can build a scale model of the, the temple, it was given as something else because you're measuring people. Like if we'd measure Rock Valley Bible Church building, right, I could do that, but it's difficult to measure people, especially with a, a measuring stick or a measuring rod. And so to figure out what this is, right, what, what does this mean, right, the best thing to do is to turn other places in Scripture because the Scripture speaks several times about having a measuring rod or a measuring line that is given upon a people. For instance, in 2 Kings 21, verse 13, it's a result of the evil of Manasseh. Listen to what the Lord said. God says this, I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Arab, of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem. It's one wipes a dish, wiping it as turning it upside down. I'm going to measure that city. I'm going to wipe it out. 
destruction. We also see this in Lamentations 2, verse 8. It says this, The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Measuring out the city of Jerusalem, they destroy it. There are times when the measuring line is used for judgment, but there are also times when the measuring line is used for preservation as well. And this is the case in Zechariah chapter 2. Again, an apocalyptic book. Zechariah chapter 2, 1 through 5. I lifted my eyes, Zechariah says, and I saw, just like John, he sees, he sees this vision. He's just writing down what he sees. He says, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And they said, where are you going? They said to me, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to see what's its width and what's its length. And behold, an angel who talked with me came forward. Another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to the young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited without we inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of the people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. I will be the glory in her midst. In other words, right, you're, you're measuring that city that God is going to come and bless so much so you don't even need a wall. And I think that's the perspective. Probably what's happening here in Revelation chapter 11. John is told to measure the temple and the altar and those within it because the Lord will protect those who are within Jerusalem. I say this particularly also in verse 2. What he's told not to measure, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And in verse 2, he's told not to measure outside because that's the portion of the temple that is going to be destroyed by the nations. They're going to trample it. For 42 months. In other words, right, God's not protecting the outer court of the temple. That court's given to the nations to do what they want to do with their evil. So I, I believe the measuring here is not a, a physical measuring of a temple to try to figure out some dimensions of it, but I think it's a measuring to signify God's protection of those who worship him. Thus, I don't think it really matters what sort of temple John saw, whether it was Solomon's temple or Zerubbabel's temple or Herod's temple or some future temple. The, the picture we see is God's protection of his people in Jerusalem. And I would just say, right, go back to the first century listeners. This would be of great comfort to those in the first century. Facing persecution, hard times of their day, right? People are opposing them, right? They're, they're against them. And God says, listen, I got this. I measured out the city you're going to be safe. They may rage outside, but you're safe and secure in the arms of God in the temple. I'm reminded of Psalm 2 when David writes, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Right? We don't want God. Let's, we don't want to be under His shackles. Let us go. Let's freedom. Let's, let's get against God. Nations may rage against the Lord and his anointed. But God sits in the heavens. You remember what it says? But the Lord sits. He who sits in the heavens, what does he do? He laughs. He says, you think you can resist me? The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, the nations may rage, but God has prevailed. Jesus is on his throne, and there is very little reason to fear. We're going to see this in, next week in chapter 11, verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And I think this is the idea here. Right? Outside the temple, where I haven't measured, they're going to rage. But inside the temple, I'm going to protect those. Let those outside the temple, let them rage. Let them trample the holy city. It's, it's not forever, even as he says. It is for 42 months. It, it's not forever. I'm in control, and I'm going to protect you and keep you safe. Now, the, these 42 months, I do believe that it's, it's an idea that's not going to last forever. God will let them rage for his determined time. That's that. But at the end of the time, the trampling of the Holy City will be over. And so I just think about us, right? Do we see raging of the nations of the world? We see wars. Ukraine and Russia is just the, the war du jour of the day. There will be others if the Lord tarries. 
do we see even in our country ungodly legislation becoming law and immorality abounding in our society? Right? And things bad taught in the public schools. We see all this, right? The book of Revelation has to teach us not to fear. Especially if God has measured us and we are in that we are worshiping the Lord in the temple. Then we are safe and sound. But you say, well, I don't go to the temple to worship. I worship with the people of God in a, in a building that looks like this. This isn't a temple, right? There's no altar here. I say, absolutely, but do you realize there are multiple places in the New Testament where believers in Jesus are described as being God's temple? I just have a few. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Someone destroys God's temple, he will destroy them. We are God's temple the imagery of the new testament jesus come he says oh i will i will will destroy this temple in three days i'll raise it up again it's his body and we're part of his body we're part of a temple first uh, corinthians six nineteen. or do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit within you whom you have from god you are not your own for you're bought with a price so glorify god with your body we're the temple ephesians 2 verse 19 through 22 so then You're no longer strangers and aliens, but now you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So he describes what the household of God is like. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so when Revelation even ends, we see that there's actually no physical temple in heaven at all. Revelation twenty one twenty two, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And it may just be that this is the key to unlock this measuring of the temple. That this isn't signifying any physical temple at all. It, it's signifying the people of God who are measured out to be protected against the raging of the world, because God measures the temple. That that's outside, He lets them rage. And note here also the parallel to. Revelation chapter 7. Again, I want to review this one more time. Right? We know that the backbone of Revelation is seals, trumpets, and bulls. There are seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bulls. And the seven seals are in Revelation chapter 6, and the, the trumpets are in 8 and 9, and the, the bulls are in chapter 16. But actually, that's, that's not quite the case, because Revelation 6 has only six seals And then the seventh seal comes in chapter 8, which basically are the seven trumpets. And actually, the six, only six trumpets are in Revelation 8 and 9. And the seventh trumpet comes in Revelation chapter 11. And in between chapter 7, between the seals and the trumpets, there's what you call an interlude. There's like this respite. There's this like like little little rest. So it's it's sort of like the, the seals are poured out and then you like need a rest for the quarter. And then the trumpets are, are, are carried out, and then you need to rest for the half before then you're going to come with that final bold judgment. And we had an interlude, and I'm not sure if you remember. So, like, also there's an interlude there in chapter 7, and an interlude again in Revelation 10 and 11. And, and do you remember the interlude of 7, what it was about? Why don't you just turn back there in your Bibles and maybe just look at the headings right there. The 144,000 are sealed, and then the great multitude that came out of the great tribulation there. And the idea of the interlude in Revelation 7 is that God will protect his people. And I think that's the the message in light of all this judgment that's coming about, all this catastrophe upon the world. Just relax. God's got his people. He seals the 144,000 so they're secure from the onslaughts of the world. And they will indeed come into his glory as the end of Revelation chapter 7 speaks about this, this great multitude that no one can count from every tribe and language and people and nation. Well, in, in Revelation 11, we see a similar story here in, in measuring the temple. We have a picture of God's protecting those who worship him in the temple, the New Testament temple, who those who worship him, he's going to protect from the evils of those who trample the holy city. So in light of all this horrible trumpet judgments that have been, and we've seen, right, a third of the earth being burned up. We saw these locusts tormenting everybody, and we saw all this trial. Church, take notice. 
and comfort that in all of this, God has us protected. So if you're a believer in Christ, you're God's temple, and he'll protect you until the end. Well, let's move on. We've seen measuring, and now we see witnessing. And this is perhaps the most exciting story in all of Revelation. So kids, right, tune up. This is, this is very fun if you've never heard this before. Right? So what I want to do here first is I want to just describe the vision that John sees. I'm just going to say, this is what John sees. Verse 3, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Here we're introduced to the two witnesses of Revelation. And their activity, they'll prophesy. We see the time of their prophesying, 1260 days, and we see the clothing that they wear. They wear sackcloth. Sackcloth is like an uncomfortable garment. It's like potato sack. It's on your skin. If you talk to my wife, you know that I have, what do you call it, sensory issues maybe? Like, like for me, there are certain fabrics that I just won't wear. I, I will wear shirts that are comfortable. I don't, looks to me is like way secondary. Comfort is like, like high on the list. Is that right? Have I, I've rejected a few shirts in our time of our marriage. Polyester, straight, they're very difficult. All right. But these, sackcloth, is a very uncomfortable garment to wear. It, it puts themselves in discomfort as an outward sign of what's happening in the souls. Sackcloth is worn by, by mourners who are crying, right? And they're, and they're inside, they're, they're like in pain, they're just mourning. And so outside they're expressing that. Or they're repentant, right? They're mourning over their sin, and so outside they're expressing that. But sackcloth also is a garment of the prophets. Think John the Baptist, it's what he wore. And here these two witnesses are prophets. In fact, even if you look at verse 10, they are identified as uh, those who are prophets. I think it's 10, 11, or maybe, maybe it's, it's there someplace. Those who dwell on the earth because... Anyway, it's later on that they're called prophets. I think I... I missed my, my reference here. But they're called prophets, and these prophets prophesy for 1,260 days. So if you're thinking about some things, 1,260 days is how many months? Pull out your calculator, right? 42 months. 42 months is 1,260 days, which was mentioned in verse 2. Pushed into years, how many years is that? How many years is 42 months? Three and a half months. We're going to see this time frame come up and up again. I'm going to address it later. Not now. But just know that there's some connection between the measuring for 42 months and the prophesying for 1260 days. 42 months, three and a half years. Anyway, in verse 3, we have these two witnesses coming and prophesying for a couple years. And then the question naturally comes up, right? Who are these two witnesses? Glad you asked, because John tells us in the vision who they are. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. The help? Tells us who these witnesses are. All right, the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Well, this is a reference to Zechariah chapter 4. If you knew Zechariah 4... If you knew Zechariah pretty well, you would know this. I trust most of you are not familiar with that chapter, so let me just read a portion of it. Zechariah 4, 1 through 3. This is how it starts. And the angel, and again, this is apocalyptic literature, so symbolic and all this other stuff. Take it like you will, Revelation, like just strange and bizarre things that have this meaning. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who's awakened out of his sleep. He said to me, what do you see? And he said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and one that is on the left. This is a graphical representation of what he saw. He sees this golden lampstand in the middle, with seven lamps on it. Again, right, you get the seven, like Revelation does, this apocalyptic style of what is seven lamps of bowls on it, seven lamps, each lit on the top of it. And this lampstand is flanked on either side by two of the olive trees. And if you're confused at what this means, maybe some of you look at that and say, oh, I know what that means. Uh, join the club because Zechariah was confused as well. 
I mean, I, I love it when you're like, oh, what does that mean? Oh, these are the, okay. And uh, then you read it, but you're still confused oftentimes. So let me just continue in Zechariah. I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? Is it no, my Lord? Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by my might, nor by my power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This vision was given to strengthen and encourage and help Zerubbabel, who was the one who came back and really built the temple in Judah and then became the ruler in their country. And it's as if he was told, look at this, and it is not by your power that your ministry will succeed. It's not by your power that you're going to succeed in building the temple and ruling over the people. Rather, it's the power of the Spirit of God that you will succeed. I think here the picture of the olive trees is that the olive trees are continually supplying the oil that's needed for the lamps, and the lamps will burn, and this is as close to perpetual motion as you will get, is the idea. And so likewise, the Spirit of God continued to supply Zerubbabel with everything that he needed. All right, but here in Revelation... 11, we've got two lampstands. Welcome to apocalyptic literature, where numbers and images swirl in our minds. We've got two witnesses because the scripture says, by the mouth of two witnesses will every fact be established. And maybe just expanding this, this one lampstand into two lampstands because this witness motif is there. I'm not exactly sure. This is apocalyptic literature. It's not exact science. It gives us this image of two witnesses going about in the spirit and power the power of the Spirit of God. And their power is evident in verse 5. After these olive trees come here and the lampstand, all of a sudden we get this picture of the power. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and he consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. What a, what a scene. Can you imagine it? These two witnesses are walking about prophesying in the ways of God. And they have the power to resist those who kill, to kill those who resist them. Now, if you know anything about prophets, they were resisted and they were hated. Isaiah preached to hard-hearted people who refused his message. Jeremiah was threatened with death when he prophesied against Judah. He was threatened as a traitor, and eventually he was even thrown into a pit and left for dead. Jesus, when speaking about Jerusalem and their relationship with the prophets, said in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Prophets are hated by the world, even by the religious world, maybe especially by the religious world, who's saying, peace, peace, there's no peace. And the true prophet comes in and says, I have a different message for you. And they say, oh, get out of here. We don't like that. Killed sometimes. But these prophets in Revelation 11 are different. If anyone comes to fight against them, they simply (sighs) breathe fire and kill their enemies. These witnesses are man-dragons, is who they are. Not only that, they have the power over nature. Verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. They just want to inflict harm upon people. They just, poof, and here it goes. And this has led many to believe the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah, raised from the dead. And some believe that there's Rubble, um, and maybe Joshua in Zechariah. Joshua might be the second lampstand there, because Zechariah speaks about that. But Moses and Elijah, because their power is similar to the power of Moses and Elijah. And Moses and Elijah, by the way, are seemingly kind of special, that Moses' body was not found on Mount Nebo when he passed away, maybe not buried. Elijah was taken in a whirlwind to heaven, and they both came back and appeared with Jesus in the transfiguration. So they said, maybe these people are Elijah and Moses, raised from the dead, or come to visit. In his day, Elijah prophesied to Ahab. 1 Kings 17, verse 1, As the Lord, the God of Israel, is before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And indeed, by the words that came by out of Elijah's mouth, it did not rain on the earth again. But there was a drought that lasted all on the earth. You know how long that drought lasted? When Elijah said, oh, there'll be no rain until I say so. How long that drought last? Oh, 
little squeeze words back there someplace. Three and a half years. It's not a coincidence. There's three and a half years. There's, there's tie in this passage to Elijah. Three and a half years is 42 months, 1260 days. Just tuck that away. It's the power of these two witnesses. They can shut up the sky and they can stop the rain. They can also bring plagues like Moses. At his word, the water in the Nile turned to blood. At his word, the, the plagues came like frogs and gnats. His word, livestock die and died and boils came upon people and, and hail came down from heaven and darkness was upon the land. Just like verse 6 says, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. What power these prophets have? There are many believe they're the witnesses. Are, these witnesses are Moses and Elijah. And, and I'm not sure about that, but I know they come in the spirit and power of Moses and Elijah. But after three and a half years, their time is up. Verse 7, And when they have finished their testimony... It's almost as if they were given their task to testify and they finished. They were not rushed. They finished it in three and a half years. And then it says, The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. This is the first mention of the beast in Revelation. We'll see him again coming in Revelation 13. But suffice to say, this is probably Satan personified. The beast, there's a bunch of um, imagery that, that's going to pull from Daniel. We'll get into that more when we get into chapter 13. But this is like, like Satan coming upon the earth. And the point here, I think, is that it takes demonic power to stop these witnesses. When people resist them, fire comes out of their mouth and they die. And they learn that pretty quick. And they learn that if they go against these prophets, then um, you know, bad things happen to them because they strike them with plagues. But when their time is up, the beast comes and he, makes, he will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. It takes Satan to come and kill them. All certainly under control of God. Verse 8, then their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. Here's a geographical reference where John saw these things take place. Yes, he's on the island of Patmos, but this is a vision. This is something that he sees. He's not teleported there. He, he, he sees this vision of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified on the cross for our sins. But John is told, don't, don't call it Jerusalem. Don't call it the city of peace. Call it Sodom and Egypt. Sodom is known for its sexual immorality so bad that God destroyed it by fire and brimstone raining down from heaven. Egypt is that country known for the oppression of the people of God. It's in the days of Moses. And and there are times when God calls the people of Israel Sodom and Gomorrah. If you read Isaiah chapter 1, he speaks to them, O rulers of Sodom. Right, just, just personifying the, the evil that is coming in there. And that city, which is called the holy city, in verse 2, is trampled by the nations, became as secular and wicked as the worst cities the world has ever known. For three and a half years, the city did not repent at the preaching of these two witnesses. Rather, they resisted him, and then they did, and then they tolerated him. Finally, this beast rises up, and then they are killed and they're shamed. If you look at verse 9. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Now in our nation today, when some particularly great person dies, it's an honor to lie in state for a week or two. Right? When Supreme Court justice passes away, maybe, or or some president maybe they, they can lie in state. People come and pay their respects to the lives that they, that they lived. But in the ancient world and, and in the Middle East today, it's not the case. Burials take place very quickly in the, ancient, in the, in the modern world in the Middle East. Right? Not to bury a body quickly is the ultimate shame and humiliation upon those who die. You see at the end of 1 Samuel, when uh, Saul was killed in battle, the Philistines beheaded him and fastened his body to the wall at Bethshan. And then these valiant men from Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done with his body and they traveled all night long just so they could take his body off of the wall and deal with it in an honoring way. They burned it and then buried it. And here in verse 9, we see no proper burial. 
So hated will be these witnesses that they will lie in the street of Jerusalem for three and a half days, and the world will see them dead. Verse 9 says that for three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies. Now, I'm not quite sure why the ESV puts here some. Because it's almost like, well, there's there some people who are going to see it. But the Greek text doesn't say some. The Greek text simply says the peoples and tribes and languages and nations for three and a half days will gaze at their dead bodies. There's no limitation here. The idea is almost, and you can see this in other Bible translations, that the, the whole world around sees these two witnesses who are making the news in Jerusalem, which John could never have thought possible in that day. But of course, in our day, right, with satellite TV, you can understand a newscaster's being there. And today with our phones, anybody can broadcast anything all alive, live in audio and video for all the world to see. Super easy. Now, if anyone from these people's tribes and languages of the earth sees what's happening, right? maybe there's someone in Chicago seeing what's happening, and, and they go out there and they try to give some respect to these two witnesses and try to, try to rescue these bodies just like those men from Jabesh Gilead did, they will be refused because the people love it that these witnesses are being dishonored. Verse 10 says this, And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. Okay, it was verse 10. Because these two prophets, they're called prophets and witnesses, had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. It's like Christmas time. When the witnesses are dead, these prophets have been killed. We tried to kill them. We couldn't. They killed us. But we finally got them back. They could not be stopped, but they're, they're finally dead. I just can't help but to ding dong. The witch is dead. The witch is dead. It's like, woohoo! These men are dead. The world rejoices. Because the world, world, world regards their prophesying, in verse 10, as torment to those who dwell on the earth. It's how the world sees the gospel. It's how the world sees us. Sees us as foolishness, as hated and despised. John said it this way in his gospel. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And though these witnesses were telling people the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the need to repent, to be right with God and to know true joy. They brought a message of hope, but they were hated. Ahab called Elijah the troubler of Israel. And that's what the world will think of these two witnesses in Jerusalem. They are troubling the world. But like the message that they proclaim, that John sees them proclaim, of one who is dead and now lives again. So they will also rise for the world to see. Look at verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Just like the Lord breathed life into Adam's nostrils, Genesis 2, verse 7, so also will the life from God enter these corpses, and they'll rise again to stand on their feet. Reminds me of Ezekiel 37 when Ezekiel is told to prophesy over the dead bones. Ezekiel 37, verse 4. The Lord said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And then Ezekiel says, I did that. I prophesied that message. And says, Ezekiel 37, verse 10, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And likewise, these men here stood up on their feet, just like Ezekiel. There's so many, like these subtle, subtle allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. I really to understand Revelation, you need to understand the Old Testament well. Well, verse 11 then brings the understatement of the text. And great fear fell on all those who saw him. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The most famous dead people in the world. Now alive. There's every reason to fear if that would take place. But they don't stick around for long. If you look at verse 12, we read this. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies 
Watch them. John saw these witnesses being raptured into heaven, just like Paul said will happen to those believers who are alive at the return of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, Come up here. With the voice of an archangel. And with the sound of the trumpet of God. We're right here with the trumpet judgments. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. This is our hope when Christ returns. That He will come and He will rescue us and we will be with Him forever. This is what Revelation talks about. Come Lord Jesus. So He might take us up to be with Him. Just like He did these witnesses after He gave them life. Well, back to Revelation 11, we see that after the rapture of these two witnesses, there'll be an earthquake. Verse 13, at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people are killed, were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is great destruction. A tenth of the city being destroyed. 7,000 people killed in an earthquake. In the history of our nation, we've had several attacks upon us with thousands of people dying in a day. When Pearl Harbor took place, December 7, 1941, how many people died at Pearl Harbor? 2,400. When the Twin Towers fell, September 11th, how many died? 3,000 died in that attack. Both these events made such an impact on our nation. We remember every December 7th, every September 11th, we remember those days, remember the fallen. With this, we have 7,000 people dying. The destruction would be felt deeply. Even upon modern-day Jerusalem, a million people live in Jerusalem today. 7,000 would cause this effect. And it seems as the rest of those of Jerusalem, perhaps, perhaps they believe. At that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And, and I'm not sure here the significance of the 7,000 is to be understood so much even in light of modern-day Israel as much as it was the 7,000 in the Bible. When, when did 7,000 come about? The number 7,000 at Sound of Bell? Someone's ministry talked about 7,000 people who've not bowed their knees. You know that? Elijah? Remember when Elijah was discouraged? Jezebel was seeking his life. He cried out to God. says, God, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, am left. They seek my life to take it away. And God said to him, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah thinks he's all alone. And God says, no. you got at least 7,000 all the time. 7,000 who are, who are worshiping the Lord. And it could be here. This may be a great reversal. Near the end of time when Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel will be saved. Rather than God promising the remnant, 7,000 will not bow the knee. The 7,000 are killed, but the rest gave glory to God. I don't know if this is salvation or not. It, it may be. Acts chapter 16, verse 9, just to give you a little bit of a reference, when the bowls are poured out, the hardness of people is, is a lot. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God with the power over these plagues and did not repent and give him glory. There's no repentance. But, but here, in light of the death of everyone, in light of their fear, terrified perhaps there is a revival that comes to Jerusalem that is bigger and broader than what took place in Nineveh. That may be the point. Reversal. And then we read, just to close up the passage, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. This brings us back to Revelation chapter 9. You remember after the fifth angel... It says, verse 12, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Here now the second woe is past because the sixth trumpet has blown and we got this, this interlude and that's going to lead us then into the seventh angel who blows his trumpet. All right. I've simply told you everything that John saw and it may be that everything that John saw actually comes to pass. Two witnesses come upon the earth 
prophesy for three and a half years. People try to overcome them and they, they conquer. I'm not sure about the fire actually physically coming from the mouth. We saw that vision of Jesus, a sharp sword coming from his mouth. And we said, oh, a sword doesn't come from the mouth of Jesus. It speaks about the sharpness of what he, he says. And so likewise, right, this, this fire coming from the mouth could easily be symbolic. But yet they conquer. And they conquer everybody for three and a half years until the end. But then their death and resurrection brings about the salvation of all of Israel. That may be the case. But I feel like I need to also tell you of another interpretation that many Bible scholars bring as well, that you can choose to reject or whatever. I'm not sure it's true or not, but there are some things that's like, okay, this is helpful. There are some people who see the witnesses emblematic of the church. Just want to throw this category out there. After all, Revelation chapter 1, what are the churches called? They're called lampstands. And so these are two, in Revelation 2 and 3, there are seven lampstands, seven churches. There are two of them that are faithful. Maybe these are the faithful little churches. We don't know, but maybe these churches are emblematic of a bigger church. So there's like a, a little clue that maybe these, these witnesses who are identified as the lampstands, which John has already talked about lampstands as being churches. That, that could be the case. And they say then, see people trying to suppress the gospel just as Jesus promised. Remember, he said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the lampstands could be churches, people, and um, the fact that the, these witnesses, they speak about Jesus, are inconquerable. And I think one of the weaknesses of this view is the church, we're not like destroying our enemies. Like we're not crushing them down. Uh, that imagery obviously fails there. And yet here it is, the promise of Jesus. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the idea of these witnesses is nobody's going to prevail against them. They're going to witness and go and go and nobody can prevail against them. Now this is a stretch here, but those who believe that, that lampstands are churches then will take this 1260 days as symbolic. Which if you'd asked me before studying Revelation, 1260 days are symbolic of the church age, a couple thousand years, I said, no way. It's 42 months. Mark it on the calendar. Having been immersed in apocalyptic literature, I'm not so sure. Especially with the tie of three and a half years, just like Elijah, just like oftentimes a time of trial, a time of difficulty. This is a time of, of difficulty and trial. Maybe three and a half years means just the time of the church when we're going through this agony. But you're going to succeed. You're going to go. In this case, right, the message of the witnesses then might, might parallel the measuring of the temple. What's the measuring of the temple about? It's going to protect you. So be strong. You're, you're not of those outside. You're on those inside the temple. So be strong. And then this then would basically become the same message. That, that God will protect his people. So be strong and be faithful in your witness for Christ. Would your witness change if you knew that you would not be destroyed in any way? If you were like one of these witnesses? The church, right, here's a good application for us, the church should be bold like these witnesses, knowing that God has promised that the church isn't going away, that we can still witness, we can be a witness for Christ, we can tell of his death, burial, and resurrection, of his exaltation into heaven, how he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's going to come to rule and reign what, what Revelation talked about, he's going to come and rule and reign, he's the one that we need to submit to and bow and, and repent and turn from your sins and, and trust in him. You know, he's saying this song, we are more than conquerors through Christ. Just, just think about this, right? We are more than conquerors through Christ. We've overcome this world, this life. There's the, the two witnesses have overcome the world. We will not bow to sin or to shame. We are defiant in your name, right? We're defiant against the government. We're defiant against the people, right? We're standing for Jesus. You're the fire that cannot be tamed. You are the power in our veins, O Lord, our God, our conqueror. And perhaps this is the message of Revelation 11, that the witnesses are the church that needs to be strong and mighty and, and conquer. And if anyways, because you, you can just say, oh, those two witnesses, oh, they'll be there, and this is just all speculation. But somehow this has got to help us and benefit us. And maybe it benefits us by saying, looking at those two witnesses and saying, well, I can be like them. I can be strong and witness. Or it may be. These witnesses are talking about the church. I don't know. I'm just presenting these out here for you. And just, I would say in all eschatology, hold it all very loosely. 
but the message is the same here in 11. This is the same interlude, the same promise of chapter 7. It's that God's got us. He's sealing the 144,000. He'll bring a great multitude into, out of the great tribulation to be in his presence. And that's our great hope in this, uh, in this interlude before we start the bull judgments uh, in some time, because that comes in, in chapter 16. Next week, we're going to see the seventh trumpet. We're going to see the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Looking forward to that next week. Come and join us. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray at the beginning, I, uh, this text is difficult. I don't know what it's true. Whether there will be actual two real people who show up here in the future sometime in Jerusalem, breathing fire or being able to kill and command plagues on an instance. It's maybe, oh Lord. Or it may be like many of the images in uh, Revelation of the fact that we are witnesses. We went through the book of Acts calling us to be witnesses. And perhaps this is highly symbolic of us, the church, going through a time of difficulty. But knowing that we are invincible, the church will not be defeated until that time when you finally are done. And then perhaps even the church is raptured right here, brought up, snatched up to be with you because the time is, is done. Maybe. Because right before the end, right before the kingdom of our Lord has become the kingdom of the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That time when the end comes. God, when we are taken up into glory and then we become your children and you become our God and we dwell with you forever, may that be the encouragement of our hearts that we would long, oh Christ, for you to come and establish your kingdom. Help us, O oh Lord, to get from this text what you would have us to get. Strange things, exciting things, encouraging things, helpful things, upbuilding things. Build us up by your word, with your spirit, in the lives of your people, in the temple that we have, this New Testament temple, your body. Help us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.